In the second book of Peter, written under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, this is the word of God. And continuing, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of remember, a reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. First, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was home to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until that day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone, their own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Good morning, everybody. Good to be back. You noticed I was gone, right? Just checking. Uh, we want to invite our children to Children's Church. And um, as they're heading out, we'll uh, open with a word of prayer. Lord, uh, we gather on Sunday mornings together as your family, as uh, your church, as your people as those you've called out, called to yourself. And Lord, we gather like this with the eager anticipation that, Lord, you'll show up, that you'll be here, that Holy Spirit, you will be active and working in the service that we render to each other, the love that we show for each other, the times that we're singing to our God and Father and in the preaching of your word. And so, uh, Lord, we pray that you would come and be with us now as we look to what Peter is telling us, this, this majestic truth that we have before us. Lord, would you open our hearts and our minds to help us understand and to believe this. Lord, we want to pray for also the Racies as they're honeymooning in Hawaii right now. We pray that uh, this would be the beginning of a beautiful union between the two of them, a marriage that is filled with love and joy and service to you. So be with them as they're, uh, they're off celebrating. We look forward to their return. Uh, bring them back to us safely, we pray. Now, Lord, be with us in your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. 
So the, the geographic, the geological concept of plate tectonics, the idea that the crust of the earth is moving and the continents are drifting and plates go down and plates push up. That concept was really first articulated, uh, came to be understood at the beginning of the 20th century. But the idea for it, the, the groundwork for it had actually been a, um, a first espoused by an 18th century Scottish farmer named John Hutt or James Hutton. So why did it take a century to get around to figuring that out? Well, it's the story of John of James Hutton is kind of why this takes a while. So Hutton was born into um, a comfortable Scottish family. And uh, as gentlemen of means at that time were wont to do, he was what was called a polymath. He studied everything. He studied all kinds of different things. Well, after he returned from college, he finished his college education and uh, he had a successful business for a little bit. He eventually moved back to his family farm and he took over the family farm. Um, once he took it over, he started making improvements, draining land and, and organizing fields and that kind of stuff. Within a short period of time, James Hutton was running the most successful farm in all of Scotland. It was pretty amazing. This guy who had studied all kinds of other things nailed farming and began to teach other people how to do this farming. Well, after he did that, or while he was doing it, he would notice things about the land, the way the land laid. He would see how water and wind and gravity would shape and form the land. And it really stirred in him a desire to study geology. Now, in the 18th century, there was no science of geology. There were kind of two broad schools of thought. Um, when they looked at the big question for them at that time was how is it that there are seashells and aquatic fossils at the top of mountains? That was kind of the big question. That was geology at the time is how did they get there? And so there are two schools of thought on this. One was that the oceans would swell and rise and would cover the mountains. And then when they subsided, the water rushing down would kind of shape and form the land. And that's why there were seashells at the top of mountains. The other theory was that it was the volcanoes and earthquakes would push the mountains up. And so that's why something could be a seafloor and get pushed up to the, the top of a mountain. Both in the 18th century, both of these approaches had problems. They, ha they both had issues. Um, the first issue for the volcanoes and the earthquakes idea was it was believed that the universe was only maybe five or 6,000 years old at the time. And so when you looked at these earthquakes and these, these volcanoes, there simply was not enough time for them to do what they had done. And so that was, that was an issue. For the folks who said that it was water had risen up, well, if there's enough water to cover the mountains, when it subsides, where does it go? And they didn't really have an answer for that. If there's, there's that much water, there should still be that much water, and there isn't. So that was the question. So what happened with James Hutton is he began to ask that question. He began to, to investigate, and he did studies, and he moved to the University of Edinburgh and began to do geological research. And what eventually happened was he came up with this idea that maybe the world is much older, that these, these, tectanic, these, these, these earthquakes and volcanoes and stuff could actually do what we see, but it just takes a real long time. So that was his idea. The problem was he couldn't communicate it. Um, near the end of his life, he wrote his magnum opus, A Theory of the Earth with Proofs and Illustrations. And here's what he wrote. Here's just a brief quote from it. 
The world which we inhabit is composed of the materials, not of the earth which is immediate pre uh, predecessor of the present, but of the earth which in ascending from the present we considered as the third and which has preceded the land which was above the surface of the sea while our present land was yet beneath the ocean. The man couldn't write a coherent sentence if he tried. He was terrible. He, he just couldn't write. Um, this this, this um, theory of the earth was 2,000 pages of that. So do you see why people didn't catch on? They just couldn't, they couldn't get it. So one of the greatest things for the study of geology that ever happened was James Hutton died. And I don't feel bad. He lived a nice long life. He was born early in the 18th century and died almost at the end of the 18th century. But when he died, a man he worked with whose name was John Playfair, I love that last name, Playfair. Playfair was a mathematician at University of Edinburgh, and he had actually been good friends with Hutton and had accompanied him on many of his, his archaeological expeditions and, uh, or his, his geological expeditions and understood what Hutton was trying to say. Well, Playfair also had, had a way with words. One person described him as being able to write silken prose. I love that. I wish I could write silken prose. So what he did is a few years after Hutton's death, he gathered up Hutton's writings and essentially translated them into English, <laughs> made them accessible. And so now all of a sudden there's this introduction of this idea that the earth is, is fluid and it's moving and, and uh, things rise and they sink and there's earthquakes and all of this happening. And eventually that led to the idea of uh, plate tectonics. And, and we measure that. We can measure how fast the, the continents are drifting apart. Um, what was going on was that Hutton had an idea and he couldn't communicate it. But when it was communicated after he died, it was okay. What Peter is gonna do for us this morning is kind of the exact opposite. He's kind of the anti-James Hutton. He has not a theory, he has the truth. He has something he's experienced and he knows his death is coming. It's, it's on its way. And he's able to articulate it for us. And he's going to tell us some profound truth that we need to know. And so that's where he goes at the end of chapter one. He begins with this statement. Um, the first three or four verses are kind of his introduction. He says, therefore, I intended always to remind you of these qualities. Now, remember the qualities that he's talking about. It's been a bit because I wasn't here last week. The week or two before, he said, if you have these qualities and you're growing in them, so he said, to your faith, add, stadfa add steadfastness, and to your steadfastness, add virtue, and those kind of things. Those are the qualities that he was talking about. So he says, if you, um, um, it, I intend to remind you of these qualities, remind you that these are the things that are characteristics of a, of a Christian, though you know them and are established in them, and, uh, and the truth that you have. So he says, I know you have it. I know you've got it, and I'm glad for you, and, I'm, and hang on to those things. But he says, I think it was right. I think it right as long as I'm in the body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. So what he's saying is, he's, I, you guys are established. You have the truth. You're rooted in it. And I'm glad for it. That's exactly what you need to do. But I'm not going to be here forever. I'm going away. Uh, I will soon be putting off this body. Uh, if you have another translation, it say this, may say this tent. And that, that's the way he describes his body is the tent of his body. I'm going to put this off. And then in verse 14, he says, since I know that the putting off my body will be soon as our Lord Christ has made clear to me. So 
there's some discussion here. What's he mean by that he's going to die and, and Jesus has made this clear? Did he receive some extra um, revelation that his death was coming upon him soon? Or is it just that he remembered what Jesus said at the end of the Gospel of John? Remember when Jesus told him, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. He asked him three times. After he said that, he said to him, so then, um, where did I put it? Oh, it's gone. Um, after that, what he told Peter is he said, uh, when you were a young man, you went anywhere you wanted and did what you wanted. But when you're old, you will be led where you're going to go, dressed as you want to be, and your hands will be spread out. Um, that, that spreading out of my hand. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I found it. He says, um, let me quote it exactly because I screwed it up. I mess it up every time I say it because I, I don't get the words exactly right. I'm not Jesus, in case you were wondering. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But you, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John tells us that was Jesus predicting the manner of Peter's death. That phrase, stretch out your hands, the thought is that may be a technical term for crucifixion. And from tradition, we know that Peter was crucified. That was how he was, he was executed. So it's possible that Peter is looking back at this discussion that he had with Jesus and thinking, my time is at hand. This is what Jesus was talking about. Maybe it's the political situation in the Roman Empire. Maybe there was a lot of persecution. Whatever it was, Peter recognizes his time is short. And so he wants to do exactly what Jesus told him when he said, you're going to get killed. He said, feed my sheep. So what's Peter doing? He's like, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. You need to remember these things. He's here to feed his sheep, feed his, as in Jesus' sheep. So I think that's more likely what's going on. So he says, um, I will make every effort. So after my departure, you will be able at any time to recall these things. And so he's writing them down for us. He's inscripturated them. He's wrote it, written them down. Now, here's the thing that Peter is doing. He says, I'm not going to be with you forever. Um, the role of the apostle was to establish the church, to explain the story of Jesus. These were people who walked with Jesus for three years. Their role was to say, here was what the truth is. And Peter says, you, you're not going to be able to come to me and say, hey, Peter, tell me that story about. And so the theory is that Mark worked very closely with Peter and essentially wrote down his sermons and turned it into the gospel of Mark, the story of, of Jesus. So he, he knows we've got this written down. After I depart, you have the scripture. You have these, these things that are written down. And so that's exactly where he goes with this. That's where he's going to take us. He, he knows he's going to leave. He, he said, look, what you need to grow in grace is you have to have a knowledge of God, right? Through his divine power, God has granted us, Jesus has granted us all things that pertain to godly living through the knowledge of him who called you to his glory and majesty. So that's his purpose. How do we get that knowledge? Peter's not here to explain it to us. How do we get that knowledge? That's where he goes next. So verse 16, he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So now where he's, he's beginning to go, where he's going to go in chapter two is he's going to describe these people who are a threat to their growing in grace. These false prophets who are going to come in, he's going to describe what they're like. In chapter three, he's going to address their heresy, where they're wrong and how they're going to destroy you if you listen to them. So where he's going here now is he's like, look, you guys, I'm going to depart. I'm going to be gone. You can't come to me. 
I want you to have something that will last and endure, something that will stir you up by way of reminder. I didn't follow this. Look, I didn't make up cleverly devised myths about this. Now, the thought is that is, is he saying that the false prophets were accusing the apostles of making up myths? Or is it that the false prophets were making up myths? And I think it's more than likely the second, but that's just kind of my impression. But whatever it is, he's, he's assuring them, listen, you guys, when your apostles come and they tell you these things, we're not making it up. This actually happened. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So when I tell you that you need everything you need to grow in grace is through the knowledge of him, and I tell you what he's like, it's not because I'm making it up. It is who he is. This is what I saw. Now listen to where he goes. I found this really, really neat the way he does this. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter could have gone to any number of stories about Jesus to talk about his majesty and his power and his, his glory, right? Jesus did some amazing things, and Peter walked with him while he healed people, while he cast out demons, while Jesus walked on water, when he raised the dead, when Jesus himself was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. And he could have listed any of those. He could have gone to any one of those stories and said, look, this is what we're telling you. But instead, he says, he, he talks about the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John go with him up on the mountain, and he begins to pray, and suddenly his face is changed. It glows bright. He, he's surrounded with glory. And this is what Peter points to. This is what we need to hear. What does he point out in that event? There, there, when you read through the Gospels, there's a number of things that were going on on that mountain. What he points to is not Jesus' appearance. He doesn't say, look, we saw him and his face was glowing and his garments were white and his hair was, was like the fire of the sun. He doesn't point that out. He doesn't say, look, we were on the mountain and Jesus is transfigured and standing next to him was Elijah and Moses. And they were right there. We saw them standing there. Doesn't talk about that. What does he talk about? God's word. He says, we heard the voice, the voice from the majestic glory said to him, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then he turns around after that and he says, we were there, we heard the voice. So he doesn't talk about the other aspects of the, the transfiguration that you would expect. Instead, he says, it was the word of God. That's what we heard. That's what occurred on the mountain is God spoke. Now, God doesn't speak directly that often in the Bible. It doesn't happen that often. Most often when God speaks, he speaks through a prophet or he speaks through an angel or he speaks in a vision. But for him to announce from heaven, his own voice is pretty rare. Um, he did it at Mount Sinai. As, as the nation is gathered at the foot of the mountain, God speaks and he announces to them the Ten Commandments and it terrified them. They said, don't let him speak anymore. We'll just, whatever you say, we'll do it, but don't let him talk to us or we're going to die. So when God speaks, that's the big point. So in the Old Testament, God spoke and he said, here are the 10 commandments. This is what you must do. In the New Testament, when God speaks from heaven, what did he say? This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. That's what he said. That, that was his word. So what, you're, what Peter is saying is he's saying, look to God's word. What we want you to understand is, yes, I have told you things that are not myths, 
But God's word is for sure. It is the authority that you need to understand who he is. That's where he goes with that. Now, what he says next is he kind of unpacks this idea. In verse 14, he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What does he mean there? Is he saying that the prophetic word is more sure than the experience he had on the mountaintop? I don't think that's his point. I think what he's saying is he says the prophetic word. I take that prophetic word to mean the scriptures because of the context in which he's speaking. So we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. In other words, before Jesus came, they had the scriptures, but they didn't understand them clearly. There, there was a misunderstanding of who is the son of man and who is the uh, son of David and, and who is the suffering servant? And when will these people show up and what will they be like? And so they didn't understand it. So when Jesus comes and he says, I'm the son of man, they went, no, you're not. That doesn't make sense. You can't be the son of man. He's a heavenly glowing being. You're not that. And when, he, when people would call him son of David, they were like, rebuke him. They didn't understand how it all fit together. But now Jesus has come. And on the mountain, God announces, this is my son. The son of God has come. And it wasn't because Jesus said, I'm the son of God, though he did. It was because the majestic glory of God announced it on the mountain. So when Jesus shows up, what we have is we have that prophetic word, more sure. The scriptures didn't change. They weren't like murky before and became clear now. It is, they were exactly the same. It's more, it's, it's confirmed to us. We can understand it. And so what Peter wants us to do is he wants us to look at the scriptures through the lens of God's statement, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus Christ, who he is, is the key to understanding the whole Bible. And, and there's plenty of verses that support this. Uh, the most famous one is Luke chapter 24. After the resurrection, a couple of disciples are heading back to Emmaus. Jesus joins them on the road. What are you guys talking about? Oh, well, Jesus was supposed to be this great prophet and he died. And now the women are telling us he's alive. We don't understand this. And he says, oh, you foolish, slow of heart to believe all that's been spoken of. And he unpacks the scripture for them. He opens up the Old Testament. He says, here's everything, I, everything that was supposed to have happened. It was in the Bible and you didn't see it. When, when um, Paul is offering his defense uh, at the end of Acts, as he's, he's talking with the Jews, he said, look, you guys, and he said this a couple of times in his defense leading up to Rome. He says, look, you guys, I'm not saying anything that is not written in the gospel or in the prophets and in the law. And what did he speak about? I have determined to know nothing amongst you except for Christ and him crucified. Where did he get that? From the Old Testament. So what he's telling us, what Peter's saying here is the key to understanding the Old Testament is Jesus. That's what you need to do. That's how you need to read the Old Testament is by finding Jesus in it. We have that prophetic word more fully confirmed because the reality that it had been promising is here. He has come. That's what he, that's what, who Jesus is. That's how we read our Bible. That's where we get it from. So then he presses on, he goes, uh, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Remember what he has said. So the, the, the premise of the book of 2 Peter is to grow in grace. How do you grow in grace? At the beginning of the chapter, he said, you grow in grace through the knowledge of him. By grasping onto his great and precious promises, 
When you do that, you participate in the divine nature. God's great blessings of just who he is pours out on you. And you do that through the knowledge of him. And then he says, but you don't just skate into this. You don't just kind of slide into it. Be all the more diligent to, to add to your virtues. And then, in, and then at the end of that section, he talks about making, be, be determined, really work hard to make your calling and election sure. So that's where he goes. So God's given you everything you need for a godly life. Work hard at it. But know that the only reason you can work hard at it is because you've been called and elect. God chose you from the beginning of the world. So we even read this morning in, in Romans, he has predestined you to conformity to the image of his son. His predestination is to make you holy. Now he says, you will do well to pay attention to these things as a lamp shining in a dark place. So now it, it, he's, Peter's about to depart. He's about to go and, and, and into his, his eternal reward. He wants us, not just the people he's writing to, but the whole church to stand firm, to grow in grace, to become more Christ-like. And how does he point us? Where does he point us? He says, you would do well to pay attention to the scriptures. It would be a blessing to you to read the scriptures. That's why I always harping on read the Bible. Read through the Bible in a year. It only takes a couple of minutes every morning. You can get through it. It's not impossible. If you don't have the time, make it two years. But read the Bible every day. This is the normal pattern for Christian living is to know God's word. Now, having said that, if you're into history, you're going to say, well, what about before the Reformation? People were largely fair, not all, not exclusively, but largely illiterate. They were working just, you know, every day. They didn't have the Bible in their own language. All they had was Latin. What they had was sufficient to keep the church alive. So the stained glass windows told the stories. The hearing the stories and, and hearing those things it was available to them. Even in the, the Latin mass, there were fragments of scripture in there, though it was distorted things pretty bad. So even then, the Christians were being fed from God's word. What you have now eclipses what they had. We are so filthy rich in scripture, you just can't believe it. We have so many English translations. Have you ever gone to... Um, uh, I forget the name of the website. There's a website with all the Bibles in it. Uh, Bible Gateway, thank you. Go to Bible Gateway and you pull that down and look for the English translations. It's huge. There are thousands of them. God has richly blessed you with his word. It's available. You can get it online. You can get it free. You can. I, how, many, how many printed Bibles do you have at home? We have a ton of them. So what Peter's telling us here is he says, you would be well, you will be well served. It would, it would be good for you to pay attention to this. So pick up your scriptures and read them regularly. This is what you need to know to grow in grace. And so that's why he says it's like a lamp shining in a dark place. This world is not yet what it will be. It's still a mess. And so the world itself is trying to push you and contort you and distort you into its image. And we're called to be as countercultural as possible. So we need this in this dark world. This is what the Holy Spirit's given us. So we need this in this dark world until the day dawns, until the morning star rises in your hearts. There's a day when Jesus is coming back. He's going to return. And when he comes back, we will see as clearly as ever we could. We will be renewed in the image of him 
he will be standing here on the earth and we will hear and see him. Until that day, he's given us what we need for life and godliness. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness, even in this fallen and broken world. So pay attention to these things until the day dawns and until the morning star rises in your heart. That's the normal pattern for Christians. And so he ends the chapter by saying, know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is part of the divine conspiracy to conform you to the image of the Son. God the Father has sent God the Son, and then the God the Holy Spirit has inspired the scriptures. These are for you. So listen to how he explains it, though. No prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. So it's not like Elijah sat down and figured it out. It was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. He says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I think this is the most beautiful doctrine of inspiration in all of religious options out there. When Muhammad received the visions from Allah, an angel jumped on him and wrestled these words out of him, forced him out of his mouth. It was a violent, a, a, a chaotic thing, and he just would spew these words out. It was not Muhammad explaining his experience with Allah. It was Allah forcing it out of him. That's, that's very different from how the scriptures, our Bible is written. Men were carried along as the Holy Spirit uh, uh, led them. They spoke the very words that, that they wanted to. So when you read the Psalms and you hear David pouring out his heart to God. Lord, these people, all these evil people are around me and they're surrounding me and they're all angry at me and, and I'm counting on you to deliver me and please come. You feel his anguish. That wasn't fake. David was actually in anguish as he's writing these things. He was terrified of his foes. And yet what David wrote was exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted him to write. He carried him along. And so what we get is this extraordinarily human document. It is dripping with human experience. Read the book of Job and you, you weep with him. How is this fair, God? I, am, I never did anything wrong. I've, I've offered sacrifices. I did all the right things and I'm being punished. And I want to know why. And haven't you ever felt like that? Why am I having such a crummy week? And yet, this is exactly what God wanted him to write. The, all of these things come out in, in pure and in, in exactly how God wanted it. Look at Peter, I mean, I'm sorry, Paul, when he writes to the Galatians and feel his frustration. You foolish Galatians who bewitched you. How have you so quickly deserted him? And you can feel his anger. And that's exactly what God wanted him to write. The Bible is thoroughly, thoroughly human. It doesn't feel like it came from another planet. It is rooted grounded in our experience, and yet it is thoroughly, thoroughly divine. Men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God comes to us so closely, so intimately, so personally, that his word looks like our life. It's not something out in outer space. It is reality. So when Peter says, look, God's given you everything you need for life and godliness, he's not saying that this life is somehow detached from this world. And that you have to escape this world and then you'll get that. In this world, you have what you need for life and godliness. It's in the scriptures. Why? Because God wrote this 
as people were carried along, exactly telling us what they needed to have from their experience. Now, this is really super important for Peter to tell us this, because what comes next in chapter two is there are going to arise false prophets. They arose before, they're coming again. There are going to be false prophets who are going to come in and tell you things that are not true. So how do we judge them? How do we evaluate them? How do we look and say, that's not right? By the word of God. The majestic glory spoke on the mountain. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. God himself said that. The word of God is where Peter appeals. The word of God is where we appeal. What is true is what's written down. So that's how we're going to battle these false teachers who are going to try to introduce destructive doctrines to lead us away so we will not grow in grace. And Peter wants us to grow in grace. God wants us to grow in grace. I want to grow in grace. How do I do that? I'm going to stay very close to the scriptures. That's what he's given us. That's the sure and steady thing that we need. Even though Peter's not here anymore, even though I can't go to Peter and say, Tell me that story about walking on the water again. That's just wild, man. I want to hear that one more time. How did you ever do that? Even though you sank, man, I would, I would sink the second I stepped out of the boat. How did you do that? We don't have him here. We have something better is what he's telling us. We have the prophetic word made sure. It's clarified. We have the key to understanding all of the scripture. We have Jesus Christ who's come in the person. And so as we look to the scriptures now, we begin to understand. Now, I'm not... I don't want to be misunderstood. It's not like every single portion of this is really super easy. Um, I'm reading a book right now in the book of Revelation. Um, that's not a really super easy book to understand. But we can get there. We can begin to work in that direction. We have enough information in the Bible where we can do that. So I want to admonish you again. Take up and read. Spend time in the word. Prioritize that. And, and the way you prioritize that is not go, well, tomorrow morning, I'll read two chapters. Because tomorrow morning, you get up to read two chapters, and then you're distracted, and you got to go to work, and it's over. Have a, a reading plan. There are bunches of reading plans online. Find one. And you know what? Don't tell anybody I said this, but you can start in the middle of the year, and it's okay. You don't have to wait and go, oh, I'll start in January because it's coming. You can start today, and it's okay. God won't mind. You know what? Even if you start in, in, in August or September, it's still God's word you're reading, and it will still be profitable to you. So, my friends, if you want to grow in grace, if you want to make your apostle happy, if you want to become more like Jesus, spend time in his word. But I've got to warn you, there, there's a danger here. We can get really drunk on the word and get into the theology and get so enamored of being smarter than the person next to us that the theology will do you no good. What's the goal here? The goal in reading the Bible is not to be smarter than somebody else. It is love from a pure heart. The, 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 the way that we grow in grace, the way that we have a godly life is following the two greatest commandments. And what were they? Be really smart and let everybody know about that. Those are the two greatest commandments, right? The two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The goal of reading the scripture, the goal of growing in grace, the goal of knowing God is love. 
And so that's why you pick up your Bible in the morning. That's why you sit down and you're in Leviticus and, oh my gosh, or uh, I don't mind Leviticus so much. Numbers gets me. The first couple of chapters of Numbers, I don't know what to do with that. It's a long genealogy and I just kind of glaze over. You know what? That's still inspired. And so look to that and ask, where is Jesus in this? And how can I grow in love? And, and that's what he wants us to do. So next week, when we start on chapter two, we get to the bad news. Aren't you glad he gave us the good news first? I am so glad we got this great encouragement, this great reminder that we have the Bible. We have God's very word. People carried along by the Holy Spirit have given us this. Now watch out for these guys. You got the tools. Let's do that. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we're so grateful to have the Bible. What a blessing. Looking back through the, the ages of your people, um, Abraham had no inscriptured, uh, no um, uh, inspired in scripture to look to. And yet, Lord, he believed you and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Lord, Moses was busy writing the scriptures and yet he was like your friend. David had part of the Old Testament, but he was authoring the Psalms. And Lord, you, de you declared him to be a man after your own heart. And Lord, even when we get to the time of the apostles and Jesus, they didn't have the New Testament. They had all of the Old Testament, but none of the New yet. And yet Jesus could grow in stature and wisdom before God and man. And yet Peter could commend to us the scriptures. Paul could tell Timothy, you know the scriptures which make you wise unto salvation. And now, Lord, after all of this, we have a completed canon. We have all of the inspired word. What a tremendous blessing. Lord, would you stir in all of us a desire, a hunger, a thirst every morning, every afternoon or evening, whenever is it convenient for us to get into your word and to devour it, to read it so that we might know you better. And Lord, through the power of your word, through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the sanctifying process that you've begun in us, in our predestination, in our election, in our calling, would you conform us to the image of Christ through your word? We ask all of these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.